Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Eva Rice. She's back with a brand new novel after a few years away. It's called This Could Be Everything. We talk about why she likes noise and atmosphere when she's working. Also why Adrian Mole can always pick her out of a slump. And you can hear how her energy ebbs and flows while she's writing. I find it to be a constant wrestle and a constant battle with yourself and uh um a friend of mine once said every time he opens a laptop he says out loud congratulations because isn't that's almost the hardest bit of the whole thing is starting it and um congratulating yourself on that um i can get as everyone can really you get quite despondent if you feel at the beginning of the day that you set off feeling oh this is going to be a great day's work and then half an hour in you're thinking why why can't I do this why can't I do this and and it is for me it is normally a, a case of just plow on and just hope for the best just keep going keep going it doesn't matter if you're writing absolute garbage just get through it there is more with Eva Rice in this week's Rice's Routine Welcome along to the show. My name's Dan Simpson and this is Writer's Routine. It's the podcast where we take a look through an author's working day to see how they get stuff done, how they get that idea and then plan their entire day, their work, their life, their space to give them the best chance of getting it down onto the page. And this week, our episode is brought to you by Plotter. I'm very excited for a little while. Plotter are helping to power this show just like they can power your writing. Plotter is a writing tool. It's a software that does what the title says, really. It plots. It helps you plan your books the way that you think. It helps you outline faster, smarter, and it gives you a chance to turbocharge your productivity. Now, some of those can be buzzwords, but you instantly see how Plotter can help you out. When you open the software, you get a digital corkboard where you can easily map everything. And it's really intuitive with the way that it helps you do that. You can easily swap between your timeline, the outline, your notes, the details of your characters and the places. You can even tag it all to make it easier to skim through what you need to find it instantly. And if you're a visual writer, all of it's colour coded as well as it might be in a notebook. Uh, So if you like to see everything in front of you, everything that's going on in however way that you want in the simplest possible way, well, Plotter can help you do that. It's perfect for it. It allows you to track the details of your plot at a scene level and switch, swap, and then use them as you want. And what I really like about it, if you're having trouble getting an idea into a manageable plot, if you've got that kernel, you just can't figure out where the journey might take your hero, thinking about where it can go. It's got more than 30 proven plot templates from some of the best writers around on their website to kickstart your story planning to give you some ideas to snap it into life. And we've spoken on the show many times about different types of writing software. Maybe you use some of them. Uh, This works with them all. You don't need to worry about it being something extra that you've got to get that really has no bearing on what you've worked on before. You can import and export on this from Word and Scrivener to seamlessly transfer your story into some tech that helps you flesh out further and actually write the thing. It helps you spend more time writing. 
and less time worrying about everything else. For so many of us writers, we spend so much time faffing about the window dressing of simply getting ideas and words onto a page and Plotter really helps with that. It helps you strip back to see what is important and what you need to focus on. Now, the best way for you to look around and for you to see how useful it can be and how simple the software is and how stunning it looks really is by getting to plotter.com and taking a look around. That's plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R.com, by the way. And while you're there, if you use the link that is in the episode notes, you get 10% off the software with this show, which means that for under £20, $22.50, about 18 quid, you get access to this software forever, which helps you plan and plot your story, and it can make you organise smarter and outline faster. It really does, I'll say it again, turbocharge your productivity. To get that deal, use the code that is in the episode notes of this show. It's go.plotter, without the E, P-L-O-T-T-R, go.plotter.com forward slash routine, and you can get 10% off this fantastic software, which helps you plan and plot your software in a much simpler way. Let's get to it then with Eva Rice. She's written five novels, including The Lost Art of Keeping Secrets, which was huge in the mid-noughties. You might remember it. It was a runner-up in the Richard and Judy Book Prize of the Year in 2006. Her new one is This Could Be Everything. It's all about February, who has lost hope, is rudderless, and the yellow bird that flies into her life one downtrodden morning and offers her a glimmer of hope. We talk about how frustrating it is writing words that you know will be cut, why she doesn't like the first bits of plotting, how the characters decided how long they would stick around for. And because the book is set in the 90s, we have a little reminisce about the 90s and what made them very specifically the 90s. Aside from that, there is a lot of brilliant chat about planning, about when you start your day, about how she works around everything else that goes on into her life. There's a lot going on and I think there's tons for you to take away from it. So let's jump into it with Eva Rice and we start as we always do with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I'm one of those annoying writers who doesn't stick hugely to one particular place, but um, my I, I like to work in the kitchen when I can. So what I see around me is normally um, some Weetabix drying on the inside of a cereal bowl that my son has left after breakfast, something like that. Um, and, and the dog, I like having him in, in eyeline just because I don't like being on my own to work particularly. So I like feeling there's another living creature in the room um and uh i i I have i have other books around me but not really ones that i want to dip into more ones with the titles just to kind of frighten me into remembering how great they are Uh, like what examples Um, at the moment i've got i've got um i have (laughs) brides had revisited which i got out I mean, it's a great book, but I happened to get it out the other day and then I did that thing of opening it up and reading one page and thinking, well, why do I bother? <laughs> and then just putting it down again. Um, and I always have The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole. Okay. Because it's, well, A, because it's a work of genius and B, because you can just pick it up and give yourself half a page in the middle of something difficult and it, first of all, makes you feel much lighter and happier. And secondly, it's just like, just that kind of injection of her brilliance is... I just I've always had that one on my desk. Always. I need to reread that. I have not I've not read it since I was a, probably the age of Adrian Mole, so 13 and 3 quarters or whatever he is. Yeah. I and I'd be interested to see I've always wondered how well it translates to being an adult. Like is it is it too on the nose some of the the gags on there but No, you're, I think, you're saying I think that it's I think does it the, the brilliant thing about it is that it does work when you're 13 and then it works in a completely different way when you're an adult. And it, and also especially now cuz it's such a period piece. It's it's so um, of its time. And um, there's just brilliant one-liners, like, you know, on Easter Sunday, or um, poor Jesus, I wouldn't have had the guts to do it myself. I mean, just like, so good, so funny. And uh, so I, li- I like to have him on standby on my desk. <laughs> so that's always there. Yeah. So you've got the books, you've got food detritus around you. Yes, which is just, that's sheer laziness of not clearing up after breakfast. Yeah. That's fine. What is there that that it kind of keeps you working is there anything practical around you so uh, post-it notes perhaps or a big whiteboard notebook something that lets you know what you're doing i i've just i've tried with that in the past and i find 
I find going off track from those things really annoys me. And so my easiest way is just don't have it in the first place. Um, I do. I do have. I do have a notebook because I like the physical act of handwriting. So I have my pot of pens as well, um, even though I don't write nearly as much as I used to. As everyone finds when they suddenly have to write a letter, you you know your muscles in your hand are completely unused in the way that when you were writing you know a level answers you could just zip through and you know your hand was totally fine at the end and now it's just a a different experience writing but i do try and have something to to write ideas down with yeah what is there that's uh, that's that's uh inspirational around you so we've got the books is there pictures paintings maybe framed covers from previous books to let you know that hey you can do this you've done this before yeah i have i have a copy of lost art of keeping secrets in um a couple of different languages on the desk to make me think oh you know that was that was good that that made it into a few other languages which is which is always exciting um and then inspiration wise I've 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 always got something music related on the desk so I've got a picture of Michael J Fox framed from Back to the Future playing the guitar. The classic. I mean why wouldn't you have that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um what what's on the desk as in practically what are you writing with? We get people get we get quite niche and nerdy. People are very yeah. interested in the I peculiarities. Think I heard, did I hear someone with you talking about font in heavy detail? Yeah, you would have heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love that. Are you concerned about your font? Um, no, but I think I'm in a really weird camp of quite liking Times New Roman. Is that is that quite strange? I, I don't think it's strange at all. Really? Because I, I think feel like people have, people have been slightly raging against it recently. Maybe that's just my friends. No, perhaps, but they might not be in the world of publishing. Yes. Whereas I think... Do you need to submit in Times New Roman or Arial or something? Yes, in Times New Roman. So I normally write in that anyway. But also there's something about it that somehow elevates whatever you're writing and makes it seem a little bit better than it actually is. Whereas I I think other fonts can, can do the opposite of that. Yeah, that's my personal opinion on that. and, And it makes sense if you are... You know, if you have to submit in a certain font, why would you waste your time faffing around with it? Yeah, but I think I think lots of people do. I think I think people like that kind of um, Wizard of Oz, everything going to colour moment of just highlighting everything and then putting it into a different font, maybe at the end of the day, putting it into the correct one, and sort of seeing how the page lines up differently and how many words fit on the page in that. I mean, word count is just, you know, the constant, um, the constant worry, I suppose, that's just always haunting you. That's a really good way of describing it, the Wizard of Oz moment. The first time it had really been made aware to me of, of how important fonts could be, I was chatting to an author, uh, the comic Mark Watson, who publishes oh, a few I books. Yeah, and he, he flagged up that he would edit in a different font because it would help him notice things yes, that he I had mean, maybe that's, missed. Yes, I that's a very good idea. That's a very good idea. Yeah. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I, I, perhaps not font-wise, then. Are there... Have you picked up any tricks along the way that you use just to make you see the page differently, perhaps to make you think about what you're writing in a different manner? Um, mm, I do. I, I have. Yeah, I, I mean, well, probably fairly basic stuff like I use italics quite a lot in new sections, but also because there's something a bit kind of um, sort of otherworldly D.H. Lawrence-ish about it, I think, just do, using lots of... Um, don't know why it feels like putting something into a into a kind of more dramatic style and then you know that you that's something new that you've done that day and you then got to go back and obliterate it again but yeah I, I i feel as though mark's mark's tip is a really good one actually i should be doing that using a different font to edit yeah i think it has helped people yeah i mean I, I, this is it not a really show logical like i mean that feels like the sort of thing yeah. you should do but then maybe you grow to Maybe you grow not to like your editing font because you're... You well, know. I think he mixes it up. Yeah, oh, he, so he chooses something completely different every time. I think so. That was the vibe I got. Yes. But, I mean, if that's helpful to you, by all means, the point of this show is not to give you advice, it's no, to get I'm, advice I'm from you. No, I'm taking all the advice I can get. <laughs> you're more than welcome. <laughs> well, on a day that I'm writing and working, I'm still doing things like delivering children to school. So I kind of have to get that bit done, um, which, you know, that, that's, that's normally a bit of a marathon as it is for anyone with with kids and also um 
you know, this, it's, it's the constant thing of if you're working from home, not letting the distractions get you. It's like kind of Super Mario Land. Can you just sort of avoid them? Um, and that's that's always difficult. I prefer if I, I got into, well, it's different. This book that I've just fit, well, this book that's coming out was, was written entirely really in lockdown. So that felt quite different routine wise um, to, to my other books. But I normally, I like to be in a space with noise, which is maybe a little bit weird. I'm not talking about, you know, a rave, but I like to go somewhere where there's a feeling of other life. Hence, sometimes writing with a dog in the room just to feel like there's another, another breathing entity. Why do you think that is? I just, I think it's probably, maybe it's just to do with, um, you know, general <laughs> lack of excitement about my own company, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> just... Um, uh, when, you, when you were growing up, was there a, a constant noise of collaboration around you? Um... Yes, I think maybe that's something to do with it. Um, may, maybe just just feeling like there were a lot of people, um, maybe in the house or coming in and out of rooms, and so I didn't. I, I I like who is it? That brilliant is it? Antonia Fraser who said her idea of of heaven is to be alone in a house full of people. So you know, so it's like some great line like that, which I totally get. But I feel as though if there aren't other people in the house, I'll take myself out. And I do have membership to the London Library which is a complete dream and um, just you you walk in and the second you walk in you feel like you're working even if you don't do anything just because you're there <laughs> my brother always says that it's um, full of sexual tension um, which is an interesting one yeah. that the library that library I don't know why I haven't totally felt that myself but you know it's always time um, reason to keep going back reason to keep going back and there's always sort of somebody asleep in an armchair reading the paper and it's it's very you feel you're going back in time slightly when you're there but in the best way um, it's just it's just such an amazing building um, and so if, if I go there I'll stay there for for a couple of hours and then have a wander around Piccadilly and wander back in again after 40 minutes or so I'm, I'm I, I don't like to do huge long stretches without breaks so I'm I like to get up stand up walk around the room um, and often I need the time in the day just to walk and think about the plot so um, and sometimes the car is actually a really good place to do that if I'm ever driving a child somewhere or something I can do that um, but it's all making me sound making me sound like incredibly uh, middle class bourgeois. This whole this whole routine, but but the London Library. If I'm not there, I will go to a cafe. I'll go anywhere nearby just to be with other people. And I don't really mind. There's quite a high level of noise I can tolerate um, that I can block out and work with, which which other people find a little bit odd, maybe. But I I just prefer it. On the other hand, I don't like music when I work because I find that too distracting it's a bit like i can't do music when people are eating it's my worst thing sorry to all my friends who might have done this if they're listening but when you go to someone's house and then you know you're having some food or something and someone puts on i just can't do it i can't because i feel like the music requires sort of attention somehow yeah i get that does that make me sound like a real weirdo i, I just can't i can't kind of seem to take my 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 one ear away from whatever the music is but any music though um backgroundy stuff obviously not so much but if they're playing you know if i go and i went somewhere the other day to try and do uh, to try and do a bit of work and, and they were playing it was almost it felt like it was almost the whole of the madonna ray of light album <laughs> and then i was just well i'm not gonna be able to work now that's fine i just can't work um if it's something that i like i can't really have that on in the background so i prefer to have a kind of babble of noise of people talking or ordering a coffee or something like that um in the london library obviously it's quiet but there's just a sense of a lot of activity what time would you normally start a stint at the London Library if you're there? Um, realistically, probably not until about 10, something like that. And how long will you carry it on for? I would probably do, say, until 12 and then have a break and then come back at, say, 12.45 and then do another two hours, something like that. That's about my, my limit. But I do sometimes, um, at the end of the day, when everyone's asleep, I sometimes have spurts of, of writing quite late. But I can only really do that if I know I've got to get up early, haven't got to get up early the, other, the next morning. So those, those little windows of time that you've mm. given yourself, say mm. 10 till 12, quarter past 12, uh, quarter to one till 
two, three o'clock, something yeah, yeah. like that. How do you find your energy and your concentration ebbing and flowing through that time? I find it to be a constant wrestle and a constant battle with yourself. And uh, um, a friend of mine once said, every time he opens a laptop, he says out loud, congratulations, because isn't it, that's almost the hardest bit of the whole thing, is starting it and um, congratulating yourself on that. Um, I can get, as everyone can, really, you get quite despondent if you feel at the beginning of the day that you set off feeling, oh, this is going to be a great day's work. And then half an hour in, you're thinking, why, why can't I do this? Why can't I do this? And, and it is, for me, it is normally a, pl- a case of just plow on and just hope for the best. Just keep going, keep going. It doesn't matter if you're writing absolute garbage. Just get through it and then then go back and do it again. It's really hard, isn't it, being a writer? <laughs> Extraordinarily hard. And what always amazes me, and I want to pick your brains about this, is uh, I, you know I've spoken to authors who have published hundreds of books. And you, you've how, which book is this? How many is this? Your fifth or sixth? Sixth. Yeah. sixth book. So you know you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know that you are able to crack out eighty, ninety thousand words. You know that you're able to get that done, and you know how you work best. Why do you think there is still the struggle of? can I do it today? Why can't I do it today? Why is opening the laptop, as your friend said, such a struggle today? Um, it's probably to do with just... A, it, because I think particularly with fiction, maybe, um, there's the pressure on yourself of it being... of it all coming from your own head, your own imagination. You can't, you know, rely on the fact that you're using other people's work or facts or anything. And so it feels so unbelievably heavy on you sometimes. And it feels quite, you can't help but take it personally against yourself if you're not quite getting it right. And I think that the way that I work best, the reason why I would then maybe in the afternoon walk, I quite often walk from the London Library to Notting Hill, is to process what I've attempted to do. And I honestly talk out loud to myself in the car. I was was like I have to listen to what I'm what I've attempted so you know in this book I'd be going yeah but if Theo was there on that night then would he come back the next night and then I'll sort of almost answer myself I'm making myself sound literally insane but I feel like sometimes if I don't talk it out I can't get to that point sometimes I have days where I don't work for very long because I suddenly know what I'm going to do with the plot and it's like The relief is so huge. That's the difficult bit for me, not necessarily the writing, the plotting and the structure. Have you learned anything along the way that that helps that out at all, that helps that struggle? I know it can't be music because you don't enjoy writing with music. Uh, You you mentioned the walk. Some people enjoy a cup of coffee at a certain time. What do you do? Yeah, I think, uh, well, walking walking and uh, and, weirdly and very... um, unenvironmentally friendly wise uh, the car I, I do find quite useful because because of the because you're kind of you can talk out loud and you can you can kind of try and digest what it is you're trying you're you're trying to do and sometimes you get a feeling of total triumph at the end of that because you know that ah okay I've got it now I know what I'm trying to do and then the execution of it isn't really the worst part for me it's the it's the, the plotting and the structure and um I think it was G.K. Chesterton, all the best quotes are his, aren't they? Who said something like, when writing, start as close to the end as you can, which is just probably a very well-known thing. But I remember reading that before I started this one and thinking, because I was going to have a lot more about the central character's life before she gets to the point where it does start. And I ended up just cutting all of that. But even the act of cutting is satisfying and is fine if you know what you're doing. Is it not frustrating for you now to feel like you're writing words which are going to be cut yes it can be but it's so much part of the process that it feel that never feels sort of worthless and sometimes you might just take one sentence and one idea from something that's 2000 words long and still use that and then think that that block of time was was worth it for that one little bit what do you do about the doubt that plays into you, that plays through your mind when you are writing. I mean, we, we mentioned how how tough it is sometimes to carry on. What do you do about the doubt 
of is this good enough? Someone, I got an email from a listener recently who, who wanted, I think was writing a debut and was just struggling with that worry. Is, is this worth it? Is this good enough? Is, yeah, I mean, I don't think that you're ever going to think, well, I personally don't imagine that I'd ever think I'd written the perfect novel because I think that's a really hard thing to feel about your own work. Um, of course, you can feel it about other people's. Um, so once you've accepted that, it's it's going to be perfectly imperfect then, or imperfectly perfect, then that's you've just got to take the pressure off yourself and also know that it happens to absolutely everyone. No one is sitting down and going, well, off I go for my perfect, you know, 1500 words today and I'm sure there won't be any issues and I'm sure I'll keep every single word of this. So you just have to kind of remember that everyone feels the same in that sense. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you so much to Plotter for sponsoring the show today. If you'd like to get 10% off their fantastic software to help you plot and plan your work much simpler, head to go.plotter without the E-P-L-O-T-T-R, go.plotter.com forward slash routine. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, if we have helped the way that you work with all these fantastic authors that we bring you more or less every week, you can help that carry on by backing and pledging to support the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. I know there's a lot of links, so you have to bear with me for that. But on our Patreon page, you get access to conversations that we're having quite a lot. Little ideas floating around the writing community there about books that we've read, about ways that you get to work, even about the fonts that you like too. Also, for just a small contribution every month, it really isn't a lot. By no times are tight, so anything that you can give goes an extraordinarily long way. You get merch, there is bonus content, there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. So if you've published recently, maybe you've self-published, whatever it is, if you think that your book deserves more noise than it's got i know it can be really tough being a debut writer at times then let me do that plugging for you to make that happen to help this show keep going and keep bringing you chats with fantastic authors the most successful around as often as we can support the show a little goes an extraordinarily long way i am really appreciative for everything that you can send over as a pledge by becoming a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine Let's get back to it with Eva Rice then chatting about her new novel, This Could Be Everything. We'll hear a lot more about the novel in this half. We talk about why she doesn't like that first bit of plotting, how the characters themselves decided how long they would stick around. And we've chatted about what she does when the going is a bit tough. What about the flip side? What does she do to carry on when the going is brilliant? I have this expression which is, which is quite useful um, which is all-terrain writing. So you just, wherever you are. I think there was one time when the the car had had a blowout on the motorway or something, and I was just scrambling up the bank 
with a, with a couple of kids in tow. Um, and then, and I remember thinking, oh God, I'm now going to lose half an hour and just doing like 10 minutes, waiting for the AA guy to get there. And I think you, you sometimes have to have that mentality that you're not always going to be sitting down at your preferred desk with, you know, no distractions and everything's all lined up perfectly to make it work. Sometimes the best stuff you'll do will be when you're, when you're really not expecting it. And when that does happen, when you get those bits where you think, oh, that really works, then, then it's good to, to kind of keep going because it will then stop. It's amazing, isn't it, how this is something that so many people have done, published a book. Yeah. So many people have sat down and tried to write a book, yet no one's quite figured out the rules of it. Yeah, yeah, it feels like, it feels like there should be a more, <laughs> an easier code or a kind of more generic way of approaching it but actually I think I think the whole thing of, of all-terrain writing is the other reason why that's quite a good one is that you then remember where you were when you wrote certain bits so you think oh that was the bit I wrote when you know I was kind of wait in the train station it was on my lap waiting for a, for a, you know for the next train and and then somehow that kind of um it gives the book something more likable maybe for you when when you're working on it because sometimes it's really hard to like your own work when it's in transit sort of thing you like bits of it, but there are other bits that you're thinking, oh, I know I'm going to change this, but for the moment it's in there and I just have to put up with it. When you're in the London Library, mm-hmm. is there a name for that day? Um, is it just well, time that you're leaving? Do you think, right, I'm going to crack out 500, 1,000 words, then be done with it? I try to do a bit of a word count challenge because just because it's, it's, it's a very simple way of, of seeing how much you've done. But obviously it, they might not be a great thousand words but at least you feel like you've you've achieved that i i I sometimes will do two thousand um uh, i i kind of always aim for between one and two thousand and are you trying to work every day um trying to yes (laughs) yes definitely trying to always try to because it's that's the other thing is that it's incredible how easy it is for ideas and a flow to be interrupted by a day of not doing anything i mean that's one of the big problems if you do have if you if you do leave it and you do you just have to go back and reread everything and get it back into the mindset and and then it just delays it so this this story this could be everything this is your sixth um when was the fifth published um the fifth came out in 2015 in hardback so it's been a long time I speak to a lot of authors doing the show. Yeah. I've spoken to authors who have published three books a year. I know, I know. How do you find this, I guess, luxury you have, this liberty of being able to have eight years between publications? Um, I think I, I just, I, well, uh, the, the, there was a quite a big difference between the last book I wrote and this book. I did actually write another one between, which I abandoned not abandoned I, I quite liked it but I felt I got to the end of it and I thought no this is not the book I want to do at this point in history but I did finish it so in my head even though there's been a big gap there has been one in the middle of that is that not annoying I mean hopefully yeah, that'll come out very annoying. but for you who earns money yeah. publishing books yeah. does it not feel a massive waste of time yeah uh, yes I, I was pretty I was pretty um frustrated with myself when I realised that it wasn't that one wasn't the one I wanted to do but then I guess that makes this one feel like it like it is more what I want to be doing and I have been doing other stuff in between it's also been writing related like working on the script for Lost Art of Keeping Secrets and other stuff you know all writing um, but just not not the um, the book as in not the novel we will talk about This Could Be Everything in just a second. And I don't want to harp on about a novel that isn't going to see the live day. But I'm just curious, what, what was it about that book that didn't feel right about that time? Um, I mean, it just felt as though I was doing, I was, it didn't, it didn't feel as though I completely believed in it as a, as a, as a story and as characters and what I, it just... I kept on thinking when I was writing it, it's going to get to a point where, where it's suddenly going to fall into place and I'm suddenly going to like it. But I never really got to that point. So then, so when I had the idea for this one, I was still kind of thinking about keeping the old one going, but I, I kind of put it down to do this one. And then once I started on this one, I thought, ah, oh, this is now 
this is this is what I was meant to be doing, I guess. Well, it was based on a real life experience, I guess, of mine, um, in that I found a canary in my kitchen. Uh, when I was, I actually found, it was, that, was, that was in 2000 and this book set in 1990. But I always thought when that happened, that it felt like something out of a book because it was a very, it was a high up flat and this canary had come through the window and was sitting in the kitchen eating salad from the, from a bowl and I kept it and put up notices and no one claimed it and so and I then went on to um <laughs> to buy him a friend because he was singing constantly um and then they bred baby canaries and it was just a big it was a big canary time for me <laughs> um and so I always thought that was something I wanted to um to bring into a story somehow but that but the, the idea of it being set in 1990 was very much me thinking at the beginning of lockdown um what's a time that would be really fun to write about at this quite unfun time in history why why did 1990 ring those bells because um i was actually slightly younger than my character in 1990 but but i wanted to write about a girl in her late teens at that particular point in history because it was kind of pre-britpop pre-blair coming out of the 80s slightly unexplored weirdly as a time the kind of early 90s I always feel it's like people think of the 90s as you know cool Britannia and Britpop and that kind of thing if you, in a very kind of obvious way and, and actually all the fiction I've done or that certainly the last three books I've I've used um the point in history before something big takes off so in Lost Art of Keeping Secrets it was set in 1954, which was just before um, Elvis, just, you know, quite a long time before the Beatles. It was a kind of pre-rock and roll, but there was a feeling of uprising in the same way that there was in um, in the next book I wrote, which was set in the early 60s, pre-Beatles, pre-Stones, um, pre, you know, everything you'd associate with the 60s yeah. because I find that kind of pre um, massive cultural shift bit almost as interesting if not more interesting as the actual bit when it was really happening it's kind of, I always think it's kind of like you're putting the ingredients into a pot before you turn the oven on yes you're, you're it, it's everything else that's happening you're, yeah. you're watching all the little fires that have started before that one big catalyst it could be Elvis or the Beatles or I, I was born in 1991. Yeah, okay. So I'm not going to say it was me that I was the catalyst. Yeah, yeah. What, what was the 90s <laughs> catalyst? What? Well, I guess, but so Britpop was slightly later, so 94, 95. Yeah. From your memory, what was the moment that kind of kicked it all off during the 90s? In the 90s in, in general. Yeah, what was the sudden spark that made it suddenly not Thatcher of the 80s? What, 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 what suddenly changed everything from your memory? Um, oh, gosh. Well, I, I was also in my sort of early teens at that sort of late 80s, early 90s time. But I remember making compilation tapes at the end of the 80s where I kind of listed everything that happened news-wise in, in the 80s, you know, everything from kind of, I don't know, sort of what was number one at the time through to the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, on a kind of little thing to go with it. And it feels as though the 90s kind of it's almost like it takes a bit of time to get going. So, um, but but it kind of propelled, it was the, you know, it was the decade that propelled us into, the, you know, the new century. So I guess at the beginning of the decade, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of what, what would have been the thing that, that I associated with kickstarting the 90s. Do you mean sort of music-wise? Well, I don't really know. I guess I'm just trying to put my, to put my finger on it, to turn it over in my head. I've, I've got an idea that, Decades are usually defined by the, the later years. Yes, yes, exactly. Everyone kind of forgets about the early ones. Yeah, they see it yeah. as a hangover from the 80s, what would have been before. Yeah. And thankfully, we're in 2023 now, and it doesn't feel like we know what this decade is at all at the moment. No, that's true. I think, I think that's... And I remember... I just remember at the beginning of 1990 feeling every, everywhere there was a sense of, oh, this is the last decade of, you know... <laughs> and that, that, that felt quite that felt quite real and quite it felt very space agey just just the decade being the 90s just felt like that at the time um but what i did with this book which was quite surreal in a way for me was i found i actually found online the the top 40 countdowns of the weeks that i was writing about so i was listening to that happening 
almost in real time because you can you can find you can find them as they happened so it's so you could you could listen to that kind of you know and up three places at number 37 or whatever and you actually feel like you're still there you're like oh yeah god i wonder what's gonna be number one when you actually know what it is um so that that was really that was really interesting musically because everything was so there was a real range of weird stuff in the charts in the early 90s and coming out of the 80s and going you got kind of hints of Britpop with sort of the Happy Mondays and the Charlatans and stuff but it was it was kind of and then obviously there was a huge blanket of Stock Aitken and Waterman produced records and kind of it was like a sort of weird drinks party with kind of the most random people you could ever imagine all invited together kind of just when you listen to those to those countdowns of the top 40 and you just think god this is it's like it was like the years which the kind of decade is trying to sort itself out and it didn't quite know what direction it was going to go in so you've got this huge this huge idea well it's at this point you have the idea of the canary the bird because this has gone into your flat and you know you want to it would be fun to write about the 1990 yeah. it's quite a big catch-all there it's quite a, 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 a big idea for you to play with what happens next for you it is as simple as what do you do you, you mentioned right at the start that you don't always love the planning and the plotting because it's something to distract yourself with almost or not to pay attention to what happened next after you had that initial idea of something that happened in your life and a time frame um i wanted to make sure that i gave the character some very difficult things to deal with because I felt as though then it can go, you know, it, it can only get better for her from there. So I did that. And, th and then, as I said, I tried doing something which was, there was a lot more explanation to it and there was a lot more detail on that. And then I, I ended up thinking, no, we've got to start it with, you're just going to get right into it in that first chapter of what's happened to her and what's happened to her family. Because then you're, you're getting the kind of immediacy of the, the, the situation that she's in. And um, so I so I wrote I wrote weirdly I wrote the first chapter not really knowing where it was going to go at all, um, which I didn't end up keeping. But I but the first idea I just wrote thinking where's this going to where's this going to take me and um, and narrowing it down to a certain bit of London was was quite useful and um, quite I kind of thought well I'm writing about 1990 which you know is a decade that I've the 90, 90s of a decade I lived through but I want to make sure that I'm I'm getting things right as well because there's just so much that you kind of there's there's a there's a lot that when you write and even in the quite near past recent past that you then go oh god actually did they did they have that then or had that book been published then so you then have to kind of keep really alert to all that stuff which is which is quite hard but I like that where did the plot come from because you have this initial idea as I said of um girl this is February yes who uh, finds this bird in her home and then we find out a lot more and she's been through a pretty terrible time. Mm -hmm. where, where does that idea come from? Where are you, how are you driving the plot forward? It can't just simply be as easy as chucking a lot of bad stuff her way. Like there needs to be a, a plot that she's being pushed through. Yeah. How are you asking yourself? Well, I guess what questions are you asking yourself? To get, to get the plot started. Yeah, like how, uh, what's the thread that's driving this thing and how are you... I think I think, I think what it is what it is or what it was was getting was coming coming out of darkness in a slightly eccentric way perhaps like with this bird it's the last thing she expects to see and also the last thing that she wants to pay any attention to and she's frightened of it but she doesn't understand she, she's reading all kinds of weird symbolism into it and why is it here and I just want it to go away and then so so the bird kind of symbolizes a lot of stuff right from the right from the very beginning but um once i'd got this idea that the bird had to come from somewhere where's it come from who does it belong to how is she going to find out who it belongs to and how is that going to affect her then everything became much easier and also putting her in a house with her living with her aunt and uncle and having this parallel plot that was going on with her aunt having this affair with with a colleague um and somehow how that tied in with her I knew I wanted these two plots kind of running at the same time and they're both in the way about massive change and how you deal with that and the bird is the kind of I don't know I guess I guess the sort of feathered version of this yeah. <laughs> you said that you don't like initial plotting that much how much did you know about the story before you sat down to write it um I think I knew I knew 
enough to get going because it because with me it's almost like I just have to stoke the fire enough to get the fire going and then then it'll be all right I just I just and sometimes actually I write I write ideas for plots that I kind of think well this won't happen but I'll just I'll write it down anyway because you never know where you're going to be taken by a character and you never know what they're going to do to sort of barge their way back in when you think you've got rid of them I don't think I thought that the character there's a character uh, called Gregory Arrowsmith who's the um who's the guy who the aunt um her aunt Anne is having is having this affair with and I kind of imagined he was just going to pop in and you'd just see him for a short time and I just found him so fun that then I was like oh I've done now three chapters with him in. and then you kind of have to pull it back a bit but by that point you really like him and or even you know do you like him do you not like him he just becomes something that you that you want to keep in yeah that's what happens a lot with me. <laughs> the tone's incredibly conversational. Yes. And it's full of personality. And as soon as you start reading it, you feel like you know e- uh, February quite a lot. Mm. How are you making that work? Well, how are you... You know, this is a story that partially happened to you, inspired by something that happened to you. Yeah. So it could be easy for it to become far more autobiograph- yeah. autobiographical, wow, than perhaps it was. How are you getting to know her voice to such an extent that it's different to yours? Well, I, because she's Texan, she's, um, that, that was a good grounding for me in knowing that she'd had this, this uh, background of her, her father was a Texan guy and they'd, she'd grown up for a bit of her childhood there. And that, that kind of felt like she had a bit, I could sort of hear her voice and her kind of um, the struggle of trying to, wanting to desperately to say she's from London, but kind of feeling like she's American and, and who she was from that point of view. But also I think, I don't know, I mean, the conversational style is something I just like to write in that style. So I, fa- I found that, I found that really, fun for her as well just to have this sense of she's literally splurging out a lot of stuff um and actually at the time my partner boyfriend was writing and, and has been uh, writing an adaptation of a david peace book red or dead and i had this whole kind of weird sort of parallel uh inspiration coming from david peace in my head because every time i picked up red or dead i would read his sort of slight that is very kind of repetitive i don't know if you read that book it's I about it, bill yeah. shankly yeah. yeah um so you get these repeated sentences and and these um this very sort of almost liturgical style and so i kind of i felt like there was a bit of that seeping into her voice but then at the same time there was a kind of frantic panic attack vibe to it as well it's sort of almost like I said the other day, it's like sort of Betty Boo and David Peace had a baby. This <laughs> weird mashup of um, of kind of dr- high drama and uh, and sort of panic and repeated repeated sentences and repeated questioning. Um, once once you once you have a style and once you ha- once the character has a voice, uh, it flows a lot quicker. Obviously, so it was getting her voice, and then once I had that, and also the the text and expressions that was really fun because I do actually have. Um, I do actually have, I've been to Texas and I've got, oddly enough, I've got family connections in Texas, but I wanted to get all of the, the kind of the Texan bits that she hasn't got rid of in there. So, so every so often there'll be just a very, very, very Texan line from her. And that was also quite a good grounding thing for me to understand who she was. Last question. And this is nothing about your new book. I'm just, I'm aware that a lot of people listening to the show maybe haven't published a book yet. Um, so I'd like to ask you, with the space that you've had, seven years between this book and your last one, what's it like, and I'm also aware that I've spoken to a lot of people who, as I said, publish so many books a year that maybe they don't get the chance to sit down and appreciate what they've done. Yeah. What's it like to have published a book? How open and vague is that? Are, do you still, when, when you've put a book out there, do you still enjoy the fact that you have done that? Oh yeah, I think you have to enjoy the fact that it's out there. You have to think, you have to, you have to give yourself a pat on the back and think that's great. I, I, st- I still find it quite a lonely, a lonely thing to do in terms of the fact that you're not sharing the, um, the, the sharing the writing, obviously. But it feels, it feels like it's um, there's something still quite uh, not not invasive, but it still feels like you're opening yourself up in a big way and I still find that quite quite hard but also a thrill it has to be a thrill 
otherwise you know never do the next one That is it for Eva Rice. Thank you so much to Eva for coming on the show. That new novel is This Could Be Everything and it's out right now. Next week, we're chatting to Abdul Razak Gurner, who won the 2021 Nobel Prize for Literature. You might remember at the back end of last year, I I tried to get this interview out, uh, but it didn't quite work. The audio wasn't brilliant for us. Can't be bothered to get into the details, but basically I think I fixed it. So that should be out next week. Fingers crossed. If not, I've got loads more other authors that can't wait to tell you the story of how they get their story down. But all being well, it will be with Abdul Razak Gurna next week on the show. Remember, uh, we are sponsored by Plotter, a brilliant writing software that helps you plot and plan very simply. You can get 10% off their software for less than £20. I think it's $22.50. To get that discount, Head to go.plotter.com slash routine. It's without the E, go.plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R.com slash routine. You can use the link as well that's in the episode notes wherever you're listening. You can support us on Patreon as well at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. And I will see you next week with Abdul Razak Gurna on the show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.